Good morning. It's good to have everyone here this morning viewing us from the live stream. And the reason I say that, our situation is very unique here this morning. The, the bulk of our church is, is sick. There's a bug going through and a lot of our church people, children, have this bug and so I deemed it necessary to cancel service last Friday and, and today. However, um, I do have Brother Nathan Jeffries here, our technician, uh, and so he is the only one that I am preaching to this morning. <laughs> this is a first for me. So with all that being said, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll read from verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. May the Lord add the blessings to the reading of his word. The, this is the 13th parable that we're doing our series on here, the Ten Virgins. This parable is connected with the Olivet Discourse that we studied some time ago, which included different things or happenings before the, Lord, the Lord's return. Jesus is moving towards his crucifixion and his disciples were slow to understand the things that he was telling them. Therefore, he told them parables and this one in particular addresses how they and believers should conduct themselves while they wait for his return. Just a brief introduction here uh, this morning, uh, further comment. According to Jewish culture, when there are at least 10 people gathered together, this would constitute a synagogue. I also read in their culture where it is very common for a Jewish wedding to have 10 lamps in the wedding procession. Um, this is why some people believe that Jesus was using the number 10. Within this parable, we see that Jesus continues to to declare his return. The time of his return is unknown, but it is not unpredictable. 
Therefore, he admonishes all to simply be ready. And let me say this, Christ does not expect us to live stressed out waiting for his return. I don't believe that. I don't live stressed out. I, I simply don't, as well as others. But a godly, consistent life is the key to waiting on him. At the conclusion of chapter 24, the Mount of Olives Discourse, Jesus tells the story of a householder and his servant. And in that passage, you, you can read that for yourselves. It's in verses 42 through 51. He admonishes them, be ye also ready. Readiness is imperative as a, as a Christian. Then there is also the following story of the talents in chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. All three stories have one thing in common. The Lord's return to deal with those he left with certain responsibilities. However, in this parable of the ten virgins, Christ deals with the attitude of some right up until the very final moment of his appearing. What is heaven going to be like? It's rather quite simple. Jesus says the kingdom, or then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto. I thought it interesting as I was looking over my notes here of late, eight out of the 13 parables that we've ministered on thus far start out with this saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto. So once again, it's imperative that we understand, you know, this is, this is very, very important. It's a banner that flashes. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. The implication is this. In that hour that Jesus comes, the atmosphere of the church is going to resemble the characteristics of these ten virgins. And so once again, we need to listen and be very attentive as to what Jesus has to say. Secondly, let's go into the character interpretation, the cast with this drama. The bridegroom, who is addressed as Lord, is none other than Jesus Christ. The bride, although not mentioned in this parable, are the believers. They are individually and collectively labeled as virgins expecting their bridegroom to come. The Bible clearly teaches that all born-again believers form the bride of Christ who make up the church. Even the Apostle Paul, when writing to the church at Corinth, alludes to the believers as virgins in character. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, the Apostle Paul says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Well, let's look at the marriage custom here this morning for a moment. In Jewish cultural practices, it is required that the bridegroom prepare a place for his betrothed and then go and fetch her to his house. This could take up to a year. You know, consequently, there are actually two stages from, from what I've learned of, of a, a Jewish wedding. 
the number one stage is the man, um, you know, making an announcement, a public declaration that I want this woman to be my wife. When we lived in Sierra Leone, it, it was rather unique. They, they used what they called a cola, and I had the privilege of participating in that. Now, we were clear in the bush, and, and what a cola is, is they would take a cola nut, and they would cut that cola nut into different pieces, and they would wrap it carefully in a cocoa leaf. And then we would go to the house, back in the village, wherever it may be, uh, and meet the parents of the, the young lady that um, is in the, the heart of this young man. And we would give an announcement and we would say that, hey, we're going to be there on such and such a day. And then when we got there, all the relatives were there and some of them would travel from far. This was a very, very big uh, occasion when you put a cola for a, a young lady. And what they would do is, as we witness this, he would take that cola, and it's, it's also called putting a stop. In other words, that girl, nobody else can have an interest in her. And he would hand out those fragments of that cola nut to the, the father and to uncles and other relatives that may have come. And once again, like I said, they, they might have come from far. And so that meant that he uh, wanted her to be his wife. Now, in Jewish culture, at that very moment, she literally does become his wife. And if, if you want to uh, divorce, that's where you have to go back to. It's not the physical consummation of the marriage, but it's that, that very uh, event, you know, putting a stop or, or becoming betrothed. That's, that's where it all happens. Matter of fact, in Sierra Leone culture, if they wanted to stop it uh, from continuing, if, if for various reasons, unfaithfulness or whatever it may be, you would have to go back and get all those ones that took a fragment of that cola nut and bring them back together and retrieve that, which was almost impossible. And so it's a, it's a very, very important occasion. But after that is done, then that the, the, the groom-to-be would, would go back to his place. She would stay at her place, and he would go back, and he would prepare a place for her. Once again, in Jewish culture, the groom would actually make an addition to his parents' house. And sometime this took up, sometimes this took up to a year for him to build. And so she never really knew when he was going to come back for her because she did know that he was building and preparing a place for him. So, you know, that, that's, that's interesting. He does not say when he is coming for her, but he does give hints from time to time. There might be some talk, you know, like somebody might, uh, a girlfriend or a boy, uh, a friend of the, of the groom might see her and say, hey, I heard, I saw so-and-so, I saw your man, and, and he's really, you know, making progress on your home and so on, and, and he's on the finishing touches and, you know, maybe have a gift or flowers or something like that. Once again, this, this, this all 
is complemented by what Jesus said, you'll know the season. And so when, when the communication continued, even though she didn't know when her groom was coming, she heard the talk. And so she knew how to uh, stay prepared, you know, that, that, that he is coming. At various points uh, in, in route to the bride's house, friends who were aware of the bridegroom's movement, they would wait and they would join in uh, on the procession. And it, it actually became a time of laughter and fun. Once again, my wife and I in Sierra Leone had the privilege of being a part of that. And it is a lot of fun. It, it, it really is. But that's some of the marriage custom, I, you know, that, that you can understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Well, next, let's move on to the 10 virgins. There is no doubt that each one of them knew that they were betrothed. Now, let me emphasize that again. They knew, each one of them, all 10 of them, knew that they were betrothed. Therefore, there was a preparation and responsibility on their part. <laughs> Amen. They had to have the proper attire ready for the occasion. Now, that's really interesting. Once again, if you would go back into Jewish custom or culture, when a man put a stop uh, on a young lady to, this is going to be my wife, she would then wear a veil. And the purpose of that veil, when she went out into public, everybody knew that this woman wearing this veil was spoken for. And so it, it, it caused men not to pursue her, in theory. And uh, so that's why she wore it. Everybody knew that she was spoken for by the way she adorned herself. And I thought that was interesting, you know, with, with us. We live in a, in a culture where there is no standard for holiness anymore. I mean, people, they just dress the way they want to dress. But according to this parable, and you can take it or leave it, I'd rather go with it, but do we live lives? Do we live our personal lives in such a way that when we're outside of the church, that people look at us and recognize the fact that, hey, they belong to something else. They're not a part of this world by the way they adorn themselves, by the way they conduct themselves. People can look at us and say, that's a Christian right over there. Just something for you to, to think about. They each had to have their own lamp and oil. I also read where you know, it's possible, probably more likely, that this lamp was considered a torch, a wooden stick that had uh, cloth wrapped around it, and they'd pour the oil on the cloth, and that, and, and that torch then would burn for some amount of time. Uh, in Sierra Leone, once again, when, when we lived there, oil was available every night, and it was available late into the night. They had these little handmade um, lamps, uh, they were very unique and, uh, they, they were just made out of tin and they would put a, uh, a, a wick in there and put some kerosene in it. And, and it was very inexpensive cause they were, they were basically homemade, uh, but you could buy the oil for them, all, you know, just about all throughout the night. Uh, what do the lamps represent? The lamps represent guidance in dark places. Remember when David said in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto my path. As the bridegroom tarried, they all slept. But when they heard the cry that the bridegroom was on his way, they all arose and trimmed their lamps. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, Then the Lord shall descend with the shout, with the voice of an archangel. Hey, man, I can't wait for that to happen. As the bridegroom um, moved towards them, the Bible says, or Jesus says, five of them, actually Jesus called them very foolish, they were out of oil. And that, my friend, is the difference that makes the difference in this parable. The difference is in the precious oil. Five of them, Jesus said, were wise because they possessed it. Yet the absence of it made half of them, the other five, foolish. The oil represents the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Now listen to me here. It is impossible to be saved without the Spirit of God. You cannot be a Christian apart from the Spirit of God. It's, it's impossible. Well, let's, let's move on and let's try to learn some lessons. What can you and I as believers in the body of Christ, what can we glean from this? Number one, you cannot trust in previous accomplishments. The absence of the oil indicates the lack of salvation. A Christian profession without possession. Even though five of them look like the bride, they lack the internal necessity, the oil, the Holy Spirit. They had the oil, obviously, when they started out, but then they ran out. They were lacking. They were in need. Christians are those who at some point become born again, and they spend their life cultivating their salvation. This ungodly theology that is permeating our, our, our society today, that once you get saved, it doesn't matter what goes on from that point on, you're locked in. You know, that, that's, that's not right. That's not scriptural at all. And a lot of people are going to be damned because they believe in that, in that theology. I, I don't promote that in any way, shape, or form. A Christian spends their life cultivating, maintaining their salvation. Christianity, if I could put it in these words, is a life of preparedness. You never stop preparing, amen, uh, yourself for Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong uh, task or venture, amen. Those who become born again are Christians, but when they live their life outside of Christ, only adhering to their profession, but yet their actions and their rhetoric reveal contrarywise. They are no longer Christians. They are simply what we call religious. They're just religious. Multitudes have the lamp, but the multitudes are missing the oil. 
Being religious does not guarantee eternal life. It simply doesn't. I mean, we could rephrase that and say, being religious does guarantee eternal life, but not eternal life in heaven. If you've got, gotten saved when you were little and then went out and lived your life contrary to biblical principles, you simply need to be born again. You need to come back to Christ. The eternal error the five virgins made was trusting in what they had accumulated in the past. They had the oil. They had it, past tense. The best evidence of past convertedness is present convertedness. Do you still have the oil today? That's the question. That's the difference. Your personal preparation is non-transferable. The wise virgins could not share their oil with the foolish. You cannot impart your personal salvation to others. You can't do that. We try to testify and we try to live in such a way that people would desire what we have. That's always been my hope with my family, friends, and people that I meet, that they would see my life and desire what I have. But for that change to come, for a person to become born again, that transformation, that miracle uh, process of being transformed can come only by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come unto the Father but by Him. Your association with your parents, your family, your spouse, your friends, your church does not save you. It simply doesn't. It may label you, but it does not save you. We can take that logic and, and use it in Catholicism. You know, a Catholic says, you give me a child up until eight years old and they'll always be a Catholic. A Muslim, you know, when we lived in a Muslim-dominated culture, I mean, vastly dominated, and they were the Shiites, which was the more militant group, you know, they're a Muslim at birth. That's the way they look at it. I'm a Muslim because I was born a Muslim from Muslim parents. You see, that doesn't work in Christianity. That's, that's one of the distinguishing features that Christianity has that no other religion does. You're not born because of your parents or your, or your uh, works uh, into the family of God. You're, you're born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is a principle that did not work for the Jews, and it will not work for you nor me. Whether or not the five foolish ones found any oil is unclear, but the fact still remains, the door was shut. Where have we heard that before? If you would go back in, in, in time and go to Genesis chapter 7, during the, the whole narrative of the flood, you know, God told Noah to build an ark, and, and it took him, what, 120 years to build that ark. And, and it, it, it's a beautiful story. 
uh, I can just about imagine, and you know, I, I've been to uh, the Creation Museum down there in Kentucky where that replica of the ark is, and it's fascinating. I in encourage anybody to go there, everybody. It's, it's fascinating. But, you know, when I look at that ark and I see the, the immense structure of, of that ark, for people that have never seen it rain or and uh, therefore never <laughs> understanding what a boat is for, <laughs> once again, I'm just giving it to you in, in my, my thought process. To see a man start building an ark, a, a vessel that was so huge, so big, and people would come up and, and ask him, what are you doing, Noah? And he'd say, oh, there's coming a flood, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build this ark to, to the saving of my house. You know, the, the way I look at it, you know, everybody had an opportunity to be a part of that project, that ark. But when everything was done, when it was all built and all the, the animals and all the supplies was, was in the ark, it was Noah and his family. That's it. And the Bible says that they had a window and they had a door. And in Genesis 7, 16, it says, and God shut them in. He shut them in. As the water started to rise and, and the flood started to cover the, the earth, I can only imagine the sounds of the beating on the door, on the sides of that ark, people wanting to get in, but it was too late. Jesus says in this parable of the ten virgins, as the five foolish ones returned and knocked on the door, Lord, Lord, let us in. And the door was shut. It was shut and they could not go in. Jesus said in John 14, very familiar scripture, one through four, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now listen to this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. So, in short, heaven is a, is a prepared place for a prepared people. So, in conclusion here this morning, just some thoughts that I want you to, to consider. Number one, Jesus is coming. He is coming. That is a biblical doctrine that you can bank on. There will be only two groups of people in existence when Jesus comes. The haves and the have-nots. Which group will you be in? Which group will you be in? Jesus makes it clear in the Mount of Olives discourse that God the Father knows the repetition of history. I read this from, a, from another gentleman. I, I, I don't have his name, but I thought it was really good, worth repeating. 
People generally move away from righteous living and proper worship and reverence of him. This is something that God has recognized since the beginning. It's in a person's nature to slack off. As a pastor, man, I've seen that. Even people who love the Lord can succumb to the temptation in getting distracted and forget that God's plans, God's will is greater than theirs. Another writer put it in these words, and I thought it was really good. What do we do to keep our, our vessel? You know, we are vessels of God. We're temples of God, Paul says. Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Well, what is it that we can do to stay full, to stay, stay full of the, the oil that, that, that needs to be there when Jesus returns? One writer put it this way, and it's so simple, but yet it's so ignored. It, it, it's over our head a lot of times. We add oil to our lamps, drop by drop, through fasting, through prayer, through church attendance. Once again, if there was ever an area, I'm talking about our church, that I see lacking, it becoming more and more a consistency is the lack of church attendance because something else comes up where I just can't go to church. Or maybe I'm having an emotional moment or I've had a hard day at work or something like that and I just can't come to church. That's not putting more oil in the lamp. Ooh. Control of body appetites, bodily appetites. Studying the scriptures, acts of kindness, chaste thoughts and actions, keeping the marriage covenants, loving each other, and obedience to all the commandments of God to the best of our ability. That's what it takes to keep oil in your lamp. In closing here, I want to go back and I want to just bring this thought into focus as well. It says they all slumbered and slept. You know, one of the, the beautiful, peaceful characteristics of being a Christian, I'm like any other human out there. I work hard. And at night, when I lay down in bed, I like to go to sleep. But what has always fascinated me is I go to sleep in peace. I might have some reasons for sleep deprivation and so on, insomnia as you get older, but the lack of peace is, is never absent from me. Jesus can come at whatever hour he wants. I'm ready for him. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word here this morning. Lord, it's a good word. It, it is. And it's good because, Lord, you're the one that spoke it. You are the word. And, and Father, you know us intimately. You know mankind. You know us personably. You know exactly what it takes, Lord, for us to, to move on and continue in that prepared state of living so that when you do come, Lord, for your bride, we're ready. So, Lord, I pray that you would take these words that were spoken here this morning. Once again, Lord, I, I've just got one person in here, and that's my son-in-law, Nathan. And I heard him back there amen in me. But, Lord, those that are listening, and I know others are, Lord, help them to take this to heart. Lord, I want to be ready. I want oil in my lamp 24-7. That's what I want. And I thank you, Lord, that you do give us the means. You give us the critique that enable, enables us to, to live that kind of life. You don't ask us to do something, Lord, that, that's impossible. <laughs> it's actually rather easy if we put our mind to it, our heart in it. So, Lord, I pray that you'd take these words that were spoken here this morning. Lord, may they have an impact on each and every one that listens. And, Father, for what you do, we will give only you and you alone the glory and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you.